Kidashta, the personal touch, invite everyone to their two exciting stores, one in the heart of Jerusalem and one in Modeim. Kidashta, the personal touch, is the epitome of elegant style and service. Sterling silver, artistic glassware, jewelry, teletot, mezuzot, and much more. And also features a full boutique wine department specializing in Israeli wines. And, of course, everything is available online at Judaica4u, Judaica, the numeral 4 and the letter U, dot com. Shalom and welcome to all of you lovers of Hashem, His Torah, Israel, and the nations. It's really great to have you folks with us for another hour this week. Prescott and I decided that we wanted to play a teaching from the World Conference of the Noahide Nations that was held in Fort Lauderdale, Florida a couple years ago. Uh, The teaching is by Dr. Andrew Goldfinger, and the subject is, What is the Meaning of Life? My former co-host uh, here on Noahide Nations, Jim Long, was our MC at the conference, and he'll be introducing Dr. Goldfinger. So without any further ado, let's find out what is the meaning of life. Uh, our next guest is uh, a particular gentleman who kind of gets into an area that I always find a lot of fun. Uh, the many joys that, uh, that we all have experienced in studying Torah, one of them is when we see science and Torah come together. And if, if uh, you have uh, continued to study in this realm, you know that science every day is finally catching up with Torah. And uh, so for a person like myself who enjoys uh, those two disciplines together, the study of, uh, of Torah and science, uh, I really enjoy uh, this next guest if uh, people ask you if, if Tor is rocket science, I guess we could say it is in this case. Because uh, uh, our next speaker, and we'll read you a little bit about uh, from his CV here, uh, he is uh, not only a, a Ph.D. in physics, uh, he currently works at the Applied Physics Lab at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, he's past chairman of the Space Radar Working Group for the International Society of uh, Photogrammetry and Remote Sensing and uh, past director of space technology and training for the Republic of China. He's lectured uh, all over the world, uh, especially at Asia Torah. And, um, of course, he's also a best-selling author, uh, which is a book I highly recommend. It's called Thinking About Creation, uh, the Eternal Torah, and Modern Physics. Dr. Andrew Goldfinger. Thank you. you. You no doubt have all noticed that my jacket does not match my pants. <laughs> my wife is not here. Please, please nobody tell her. Okay? I've had a wardrobe malfunction. Um, I have the position, I've been given the task of explaining to you the meaning of life between now and lunch. And I'd like to begin uh, by asking how many people here enjoy doing crossword puzzles? Come on, come on, yeah, yeah. Why, uh, Josephine, right? Why do you like doing crossword puzzles? I just like trying to figure it out. Like trying to figure it out. It gives you pleasure. Right. 
We are creatures of pleasure, all of us. And we are motivated by pleasure. In some people, uh, I had the um, experience of going to a conference in Las Vegas in January, and I saw this pursuit of pleasure. (laughs) Very often unsuccessful, by the way. But the pursuit of pleasure. If you've ever been into a casino and you can't avoid it in Las Vegas, you don't see smiling people. Have you noticed that? Um, Why did Mother Teresa work with the, um, uh, the lepers in India? It gave her pleasure. Why did Hitler kill Jews? It gave him pleasure. And we all are creatures of pleasure. There are different levels of pleasure, and that's what I want to start talking about. And I want to do this using a structure which, was, um, which I learned from Reb Noach Weinberg, who is the founder of Eish HaTorah. What is the opposite of pain? Pleasure. pleasure. If you ask people what the opposite of pain is, they all say pleasure. And I'd like to demonstrate to you that that's not correct. Uh, how many of you have been to New York City? And how many of you have taken the boat ride around Manhattan Island? Ah, so you went through what is called the East River, which is, of course, a euphemism. Uh, What is in there is technically water, but in addition to the water, there are other things that we shall not mention uh, here. It is really gross and disgusting. And if you take the boat ride around Manhattan Island, when you go through the East River, it's best to look at the scenery and not the so-called water. So I want you to imagine that you're taking the boat ride around Manhattan Island, going through this disgusting East River, and all of a sudden there's a scream. A small child has fallen off the boat and is going under. Without thinking, you jump over the edge and swim out to the child. The first thing that you encounter is slime all over your body. And there are waves that cause you to swallow whatever it is, this disgusting, gross refuse in the water, which, as I say, we will not mention what's floating there. But you get to the child, you grab the child, they throw you the life ring, and you are hoisted aboard, Everyone is thrilled with what you've done because the child's life has been saved. You, on the other hand, are throwing up. And you go home and you take a shower. And that's not enough. You burn your clothes and you take another shower. Collapse into bed and when you wake up, you take another shower. You just can't get it all off you. Let's fast forward to about 30 years. You're now a lot older, sitting around reminiscing about your life. And someone says to you, what was the best day of your life? What do you answer? I saved the child. Forgotten is the the filth, the disgusting refuse that you went through. You were in pain when you saved that child. And yet you had one of the greatest pleasures of your life. So pleasure and pain are not opposites. Rabbi Weinberg points out that the opposite of pain is comfort. What's the opposite of pleasure? Nothing. Numbness. And many of us live our lives in this way, in total numbness. Right? 
There are different levels of pleasure, and this is very important. Rabbi Weinberg talks about the five classes of air travel. Now, you may have not known there are five classes. First of all, there's first class. All right? Then there's second class. But nobody wants to be second class, so we don't call it second class. What do we call it? Business class. Then there is third class, which is, oh, excuse me, economy, which sounds better than steerage, right? (laughs) Then there's fourth class, which is you, they have these straps in the aisle, you know, and you stand there and you hold on as the plane is going. And then there's the fifth class, which is you have to hang on to the wings, all right? (laughs) The pleasure that most people think of is really fifth class pleasure physical pleasure. And we all know different types of physical pleasure. All right? Some of us, it's food, especially for those of us who are Jewish. I mean, you know, you know the, the summary of all Jewish holidays? Have you heard this? Every Jewish holiday is summed up with three sentences. They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. <laughs> and a friend of mine said, you know, the Mormons, the Mormons believe that the American Indians are the lost tribes. And a friend of mine said it can't be. Because if the Indians were really Jewish, they wouldn't be drinking themselves to death. They'd be eating themselves to death. (laughs) We're into pleasure. It says in the Talmud, in the Jerusalem Talmud, that when a person is judged at the end of their life, they're asked, did you come across any fruits, any nice fruits that were permitted, not, not forbidden, that you didn't eat? And if so, you're held accountable. You're accountable for avoiding permitted pleasures. And we'll see why shortly, I hope. Um, But there's something which is higher class than physical pleasure. Uh, Money can bring physical pleasure. So I come up to who's a parent here? A parent. And your name is? Joe. Joe? There's two parents here, I think. All right. Yes. Your name is? Cal. Cal. So, Cal, um, you like money, right? Yeah, be honest. If I, if I offered you $1,000, you'd take it. I'm not saying you're motivated purely by money. I say, tell you what. Uh, you have some kids? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, your youngest child's name is? Aaron. Aaron. And I come and I say, hey, I'll give you $100,000 for Aaron. What are you going to tell me? No way. No way. Because the pleasure of love for another person trumps physical pleasure. It's a higher class of pleasure. And we will not trade a a higher class pleasure for a lower class in any amount. It's not going to happen. And we're talking about normal people. There are are all sorts of pathologies that exist, but we're not talking about that. Love is so important. And what what do I mean by love? We're corrupted by Hollywood. In Hollywood, he looks at her and she looks at him and, ah, they fall in love, right? And they get married. Now, do people get married on that basis? Yeah, Yeah, we have a name for them, right? We call them divorcees, right? (laughs) No, that's that's an exaggeration. But there are people, unfortunately, in our society who make their decisions based on falling in love, rather than loving. Love, well, I'm not going to ask this question to people in the audience now, but for those of you who are married and love your spouses, you know that it doesn't always feel good. When my daughter, my first child, was born, 
And she came home for the first night, and it was three o'clock in the morning, and she had been crying for an hour, and my wife was asleep. And I had no idea what to do, and nobody to call. And she's crying and crying and crying. I figured, I have to wake my wife up. And I looked at her, and I said, let her sleep. She's tired. That was love, but it didn't feel good. And I I see some smiles from people who've been married for a while, and they know what I'm talking about, because that's real love. Second, that's, that's, that's a fourth-class pleasure. There's a pleasure which is higher than love, and this is going to be kind of hard to understand. Uh, I'm going to tell you a, a story which is a very disturbing one. There was a man who was in one of the um, concentration camps, a Jewish man, and he was in a position of some responsibility that the Nazis had put him in, and he had to pick be involved in picking people who he knew were going to die. I don't know the details of it. And one of them was his son, who had been picked. And he had enough power to substitute someone else. And he didn't do it. Because it was wrong. And it crushed him. Because he could have. He went around saying to people, look what I did, look what I did, and ended up in very bad shape. What he had done was to exercise integrity, doing the right thing, which in his case trumped love for his son. It wasn't fair, it wasn't right that just because of his power he should cause another person to die. And as we saw last night, indeed from a, from a halakhic viewpoint, he probably did the right thing. You can't substitute one person for another. So that's an even higher level of pleasure. What is higher than that? And this is even harder to understand. Second class pleasure is something that a group of us met to discuss this. We came up with the term legacy. Immortality. Uh, Leaving something of yourself in this world which is permanent. Having a permanent effect and good effect on the world. Some people don't reach this. There's a joke, you know, you know that comedians, by the way, professional comedians have very high incidence of depression. I don't, are any of you fans here of Red Skelton? Or, do people still remember him? There's some people who don't know him. In his will, he directed that all the films and all of his works be destroyed because he was an extremely depressed person. And a lot of it was saved and some of it was destroyed. Um, it's very common that comedians in their humor are expressing something they feel. So there's a joke that's told by Woody Allen, and he says, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality by not dying. That's a good joke. But what kind of emotion is he feeling? Terror at death. I knew a couple who have passed on, And the man, before he died, was terrified, knew he was dying, he was terrified of death. The woman came to terms with it, with her illness. Now, nobody wants to die, but we're all going to, probably. Depends on when Mashiach comes, when the resurrection comes. To be terrified of death is different than not to want to die. And if you look at Woody Allen's humor, he says, you know, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. There's this theme of being terrified by death.
And the idea of leaving something behind, you know, immortality in that way, is not there. It's not there. So, in his humor, you don't have the appreciation of this higher level of pleasure. But what is the highest level of pleasure? The highest that there is. And this, in the group of us who are discussing it, we came to call hoda. It doesn't seem to be a term for it in English. Hoda in, in Hebrew means recognition or appreciation. Uh, recognition that there is something greater than us. All right? That everything that comes in this world has a source. That source is Hashem, the master of the universe, Rabbono Shal Olam, the master of the universe. And we are but reflections or subsidiary to God. If we can achieve that, then we have reached the highest level of pleasure. Now, I'm of the uh, Hasidic persuasion, and my Rebbe uh, is the Bostoner Rebbe. I don't know how many of you have heard of the Bostoner Rebbe. You know, there are Rebbe's, Satmar Rebbe came from a town called Satmar. Lubavitcher Rebbe came from a, originated, Lubavitch movement originated in Lubavitch, which was in Lithuania and so on and so forth. And the Boston Rebbe um, uh, comes from a town called Boston, which is further to the west than, than those cities uh, by a good bit. And he's, he has said, it, this is very unusual for a Rebbe to consult to an interview, a personal interview. But there was a personal interview with him, and he was asked how he is able to give such good advice to people. And in my life, he gave me tremendous advice, which was incredibly wise in many, many areas. And he said, I don't know. He says, I have to rely upon God. Somehow, I'm I'm never sure what I'm going to say. I allow God to put the words in my mouth. I'm not much. He's achieved a level which few of us can achieve of total recognition that everything comes from God, and then it does. And sometimes it actually puzzles him. Uh, when I was a student, and I was in the process of getting interested in, uh, in a, uh, a more observant Jewish lifestyle, uh, I had some conflict with a certain relative about it. And I went home for Pesach, for Passover, and during the verse Seder, this relative made fun of me uh, with my interest in what was going on to such an extent and so brutally that my mother went into the other room and started crying. I was terribly upset. And then it passed. And then after Pesach, I went up to Boston. And as is the situation, as the situation was in the 60s when the Rebbe was... Uh, very, very active. Nowadays, he's a lot older. and He doesn't have the energy that he did. Students would hang around his house. And I came in. I said, how was Pesach? And they all said, Pesach was terrific. And the, the Sadarim were terrific. But it's funny. During the middle of the first Seder, he seemed to get very upset. And then it seemed to pass. And then he discovered I was outside. And he called me into his office. And he said, what happened during the first Seder? He knew something had gone on that had upset me. Didn't know what it was. Again, receiving. The highest, well, actually not the highest, the, the bound, actually it's the lowest. The lowest of the level of what are called the spheros and Kabbalah, we won't get into it, it's called malchus or kingship. And it may surprise you that in Jewish thought, kingship is feminine. It's a feminine quality. 
because the king, the proper king, is not the powerful one, but the one who receives God's power and, exp- and enables it to express itself. So this is hodah, the highest pleasure that we can have. How do we get to hodah? How can we achieve this? So in order to explore this with you, I want to play a little card game. Uh, nothing up my sleeve. I have a little deck of cards here. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a card on the wall. If I talk really loud, can you hear me? I'll try doing it without the mic just for a few minutes. And you're getting me on here, right? Yeah. Okay. I'm just at random going to put a card over here. Can you guys see it over there? Okay. And I'm going to, with your help, build up a a sequence of cards, starting with this one and working our way across. And I'd like you to help me by picking the card. Cal, you haven't had a chance to speak first. So, oh, just me, you're Cal. And he is? Doug. Doug. Doug hasn't had a chance to speak yet. So would you pick the next card in the sequence? The next card, any card I want. Pick a card. Queen of Spades. Queen of Spades, okay. No, you can't have it. Uh, Josephine, (laughs) would you pick a card? Jack of Clubs. No, you can't have it. Um, (laughs) What is your name? Jack. Jack. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was going to say the Jack of Clubs. You are, but you can't have that one. What do you pick? Okay, I'll take the King of Spades. No. And your name is? Mona. Mona, would you pick a card? I will try the Jack of Diamonds. Yes, you can have the Jack of Diamonds. Okay, we're going to continue because this is all important Torah stuff. Um, Who's going to pick the next one? I'll volunteer. Yes, your name is? Allison. Allison. I want the one you want. (laughs) (laughs) Allison, we have to be courageous in life. (laughs) Jack of hearts, please. The jack of hearts. No, you can't have jack of hearts. Next. Yes. Nine of clubs, yes. You look pretty confident then. Were you confident? Yes, sir. sir. What's your name? George. George. Do you think you could pick the next two ones uh, correctly? Maybe. uh, Say it loudly. Uh, Yes, sir. Yes, sir. (laughs) Okay, let's see if you can pick the next two cards correctly. Next one, Jack, is... Queen of Hearts, yes. It was, your name is Jack, right? George. George. George seems to be doing pretty well here. We're going to have to take a break here, folks, but we're going to be right back. So stick with us, and we'll catch you on the other side. Hi, this is Jay Bernstein from Baltimore's Shalom USA Radio, I'm coming to you from the Israel studios of Israel National Radio. You can hear the news live from Israel, courtesy of Israel National Radio on Shalom USA, broadcasting in Baltimore every Sunday morning from 8.30 to 10 a.m. on AM 1370 and live on the web at www.fox1370.com. 
On Yom Hatzmut, Israel is going to party, but many IDF combat soldiers find themselves away from home protecting our beloved nation on Independence Day. Help the International Young Israel Movement and Arut Sheva's Israel National Radio provide barbecues for these devoted souls and make their 62nd Independence Day a day to remember. Send your donations to www.iyim.org.il. That's www.iyim.org.il. Welcome back, everyone. We appreciate you sticking around for the second half of the Noahide Nation show. We certainly hope you've been enjoying the teaching. So without any further delay, let's get back to Dr. Goldfinger and what is the meaning of life? We'll let you pick another one now. See how well you're doing. Two of of clubs. Yes, that's a good card. Would you explain what you were just doing? So, what you claim there's a pattern here. What is the pattern that you are trying to create? Uh, black, red, black, red. Alternating colors. Black, red, black, red, black, and then the next one you would pick a red card. Okay. Does everyone understand what George has done now? Okay. Now I want to ask you a question. Why did God create the world? Hopefully this will all come together, okay? It never has, but this could be like the first time. (laughs) Why did God create the world? Surprisingly, there is an answer that is given to that question by the Ramchal. The Ramchal was Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato. And the Vilna Gaon, of whom we have heard, has said that the Ramchal had the deepest understanding of Judaism as a system of anyone he had encountered. And this is the Vilna Gaon who said this. And that he would have crawled across Europe on his knees to have the opportunity to learn from him. Uh, his profession, by the way, I see, was an optician. He was a lens grinder. Any, any lens grinders here? I know there's someone who uses lenses, <laughs> um, but no, no lens grinders here. The Ramchal wrote a book called Derech Hashem, the, the Way of God, the Way of Hashem. And he asks the question, why did God create the world? And he gives an answer. And this is an answer, we'll say, kivayachal. Kivayachal means as much as we're able to say or understand God, which is like kind of zero. He said that God wanted to do an act of perfect altruism to bestow good on another being. Now, why did God want to do this? No idea. But he wanted to. So he had to create a being who would receive the good. And that's who we are. The world was created only because of us as an arena in which we act. Uh, God didn't need to create the world. God has no needs. We were created to be the recipients of that good. What is that good that God wishes to bestow on us? It is the ultimate pleasure, which is recognition of God, the first-class pleasure that we spoke about. Now, what does it mean to recognize God? It means to be close to God. 
So closeness to God, the highest pleasure, is why we were created, and it is what the world is about and what the meaning of life is. What does that mean, to be close to God? Instead of a mile away, you're two inches away. What does closeness mean in the spiritual realm? So Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan uh, said the following. And by the way, if any of you have had a chance to read Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan's books, they're all worth reading. There is one for sale out here, The Real Messiah. Uh, he unfortunately passed away at the uh, tragically early age of 48. Um, I'm going to give you a personal statement that I kind of feel that maybe he was taken from us because we were not worthy of him. Um, but that's just a feeling that I have. Wrote a lot of stuff in English, which is all worth reading because he understood a lot about Torah and he understood us, modern people, both. And he said that in the spiritual realm, closeness is defined as similarity. Things are close if they are similar. So if we are to experience this ultimate pleasure of being close to God, we need to make ourselves similar to God. How can we do that? I mean, what does it mean to be similar to God? What is God's principle? Well, God doesn't have qualities or attributes, but when we think of God, what is one of the first things that we think of? God is the creator. Right? Um, before, uh, one of the speakers mentioned Einstein, that he recognized God. But his picture of God was different than ours, I have to say. I'll say a little bit more later in the talk. He saw God as the creator, but he didn't sort of believe that God, after he created the world, was that much involved in it. But even at that level, anyone who has the concept of God, of one God, is that God is the creator. So if we are to achieve closeness to God and achieve the ultimate pleasure, we must become creators. (laughs) What do we create? The answer is ourselves. We create ourselves as perfected moral and spiritual beings. There used to be a slogan that was used by the United States Army, and they stopped using it. It was a recruiting slogan, and it was a great slogan, and I I suggest that all of us, Noahides, Jews, and everyone, take this as our lifelong motto. Anyone know what slogan I'm talking about? Be all that you can be. I mean, what better thought is there than to be all that you can be? They seem to have gone in a different direction now, the army now. Now it's army strong. You know, and then it was an army of one, which nobody quite understood. But they're not using that anymore. Let's take it as our motto. Be all that you can be. Perfect ourselves morally. Perfect ourselves spiritually. And we're given a roadmap for doing this, which is what the Torah is. And if we create ourselves as these beings, then we become creators and close to God. Now, in order for us to be able to do this, there's one very important ingredient that we need, and that is free will. We have to be able to choose whether we do it or we don't. Otherwise, nothing happens. Any of you who are parents 
have experienced tremendous anxiety when you began to let your children do certain things. It starts when you let go of their hand when they're walking, knowing they may fall flat on their faces. It extends to the first day that they say, hey, can I have the keys to the car? And you let them drive without you being in the car. And you don't sleep that night, by the way. It extends to dating when they're choosing a marriage partner. And with my kids, I told them all that I'd be glad to talk over things with you about this person and give you my, my feelings. But the decision has to be yours. And with one of my kids, it was an agonizing decision. And I, I had to say to him, this takes more wisdom than I have. You have to make that decision. God has to let us go and give us free will. And then we have the potential for achieving this greatest pleasure of imitating God and being close to God. How do we get free will? Are there any dentists here? Any dental hygienists? No? Your dad was a dentist. That's close enough, but I'm not going to ask you to leave the room. You can stay anyway, even though you're closely associated with a dentist, because I'm going to say something negative about the dentist. I hate going to the dentist. You too? <laughs> but it has nothing to do with my dentist. It has to do with the dental hygienist. And when I come in, she stands there, you know, and she says, do you like those teeth? I say, yeah, yeah. She says, then proceeds to tell me all the things I'm supposed to do with my teeth each morning. Now, I'm old enough to remember when there was only one thing you had to do each morning, and that was brush up and down. By the way, you don't brush up and down anymore. Now you brush side to side with little circular motions, right? Now, if you brush up and down, your teeth are going to fall out, you know? Uh, little, little circular motions. And when I was a kid, get a good, hard, so a good hard toothbrush. Nowadays, get the softest one you can get. But brushing's not enough because you have to brush, you have to floss, then there's stimudents, there's anti-plaque rinse, scaling tools, right? <laughs> disclosing tablets. Any of you use disclosing tablets, which tell you where you should brush and everything like that? And it's easily, if I did everything she said, 45 minutes every morning with my mouth. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it is a nice thing for a man to have a hobby. But I, I, I choose a different hobby, all right? Now, suppose the nature of the world was such that if you didn't floss just once, all your teeth fell out immediately. How many people would floss every morning? Everyone would do it. Suppose the nature of the world was such that if a person took one puff from a cigarette they immediately started coughing and couldn't breathe due to lung cancer. How successful would cigarette advertising be? Not very much. But that's not the way it is. If you don't floss, are you going to get into trouble? Well, there's a good chance. You know, some people have perfect teeth, but not many. Most people will develop problems if they don't floss, but it's not going to be this year. It may not be for 20 or 30 years. What about people who smoke? Will it, the effect be this year? Well, it might be, but it's more likely to be in 20 or 30 years, of course, when it's too late. 
that they notice it. Because the effects are so removed from the actions, we have free will as to whether or not we do these things, whether we choose to do them. If the effects were immediately there, we would not do them and lose our free will. If we could see God looking over our shoulders at all times, we would lose our free will. Do you know that every single Superman comic ends in the same way? What happens? Superman flies away, right? Well, why does Superman at the end of every Superman comic have to fly away? Because if he hung around, he would get to be a real drag. You know, hey, Jimmy Olsen, uh, I saw you took some, uh, some coffee from the coffee pot. Uh, did you refill it? Hmm. Uh, just a minute. Uh, you're, you're, you're a little overtime on the parking meter. Put in your quarter, you know. Hey, I was looking over your expense account, you know, and uh, I'm not quite so sure about that charge you had there on this sort of thing. We don't want that from Superman. We want him to save us and help us and then get out of there. Right? We don't want him looking over our shoulder. He's too honest. All right? Now, with Superman looking over our shoulder, we don't have free will. Who's the governor of the state? Oh, this state. Jeb Bush. Oh, that's right. That was last year. Chris. <laughs> Christ, man or woman? Man. Mr. Christ, what's his first name? Chuck Christ. So I go to Chuck Christ and I say, Governor Christ, I have a new program here for the state of Florida. I can take your most rotten, miserable, evil prisoner from your prison system, and in one week I can turn him into a good person. And he says, wow, I'd like to see this program work. So I say, listen, I'd be glad to do it, Governor, but in order for me to do it, you have to let me do whatever I want. He says, well, it's worth a try. So I said, release the prisoner in my custody. And I do. He does. And I take a gun and I put it to the prisoner's head. And I say, I'm going to follow you around all week. If you do anything wrong, if you are unkind or impolite to a person even, I'm going to pull the trigger and blow your brains out. Now, at the end of the week, will the prisoner have done anything wrong? No. no. At the end of the week, will the prisoner be a good person? No. no. Hasn't been affected in any way. No. Because the punishment is immediate. So if we are to have free will, which that prisoner would not have, the consequences of our actions have to be somewhat removed from us. And that is why God has to hide. And there's a concept in Torah called hesterponim. It literally means hiding the face, meaning the face of God. And at certain, it usually refers to history, that there are times of hesterponim, times when God is more hidden such as the present age, I would say. But it also applies to things that happen on a continuing basis in our lives that God has to hide because otherwise we would lose our free will, our ability to make choices based upon what's right and wrong 
not upon reward and punishment, and God's going to zap us right away if we do something wrong. What is the word for universe or world in Hebrew? Ha'olam. Ha'olam. The root of that word is ayin lamed mem, alem. If I make that into a verb, la'alem, what does it mean? To hide or conceal. Ignore. Excuse me? Ignore. Ignore. Literally, in Hebrew, the world is the hiding place. The place where God conceals himself and says, come find me. Come find me. It's a cosmic game of hide and seek that we can play if we want to. And what we find is the greatest of all pleasures if we play the game. Now, how does God hide and conceal himself or herself? In a myriad of ways, and a lot of what's involved in the so-called pursuit of Kabbalah is understanding some of what's hidden in the world. Now, I will tell you not only that I am not a Kabbalist, but I will also tell you that I know nothing about Kabbalah. I know some Kabbalah words, and you can buy Kabbalah books, and you can read them. But the Kabbal means to receive, and Kabbalah means that which is received from a teacher who knows it. And much of what is called Kabbalah, is, it, it, it's not in books. There was a great Kabbalist in, in, in Jerusalem, um, the Nazir he was called, and he spoke about Gershon Sholom. Any of you heard of Gershon Sholom? He was a, um, a secular scholar who studied Kabbalah, and he produced books and books and volumes about Kabbalah. And this person referred to him as an accountant, he says, why an accountant? Because an accountant knows where every cent of a rich person's money is. But none of it belongs to him. And you can use words. And I will use some words with you, but I don't really pretend to know what they mean. Because what is really involved is not a verbal thing. There are things that can be transmitted only through experience. Any of you are, um, fans of Yo-Yo Ma? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorite cellist. Suppose I tell you, and your name is? Pamela. Pamela. Uh, so you hear that there's going to be a uh, Yo-Yo Ma concert coming up next week, given twice. And after the first concert, you read the review. And it's a four-page review of how he played. And the whole score, the music is printed there with a commentary that says at this point he played it dolce to such an extent that tears came to the audience's eyes. And in this part it was presto, and, and people were almost standing up from the excitement. And over here there was a rubato, and the note was held to such an extent that it created a tension, and goes through the whole thing. And after reading that review, you say, wow, I'm so glad I read that review because now I don't have to go to the concert tomorrow night. <laughs> is that your reaction? No. Oh, I've got to go. Well, why? You now know everything about how he's going to play. Everything there is to know. But it's not the same as experiencing it. And that is 
the relationship between Kabbalah words and Kabbalah. And it's why I don't know anything about it. I can read books, I can, you know, things like that. Having said that, and being again of the Hasidic persuasion, uh, Hasidism was originated by the Baal Shem Tov. Hasidism is a, an approach within Judaism. There are many approaches. We're fortunate in the world today that we can be exposed to many approaches and choose those which resonate in our personalities. A couple of centuries ago, it was more limited because you couldn't communicate that widely. And the Baal Shem Tov kind of gave us permission to talk about Kabbalistic things, in a way, uh, to a certain level, not ever really believing that we're getting into the essence of what it is. By the way, are there real Kabbalists? Yeah, there are. You are not looking at one of them. The Kabbalists talk about God concealing himself on a number of levels. First of all, they, they confront a, a philosophical question that we can speak about, even though we will not understand these words. And that is, how could a perfect unity, which is God, proceed to bring forth an imperfect world of multiplicity? And they introduce a concept called the tzimtzum, or contraction, that God somehow contracted his pure unity essence to leave over a vacated space for the world to exist. Do not take any of these terms literally. If you are in, in, inclined to take them literally, better forget the whole thing. So God had to contract and, and, and hide himself. And the Kabbalists speak about, therefore, a number of levels of reality, the lowest of which is the one that we perceive part of. It's called the Olam Asiya the world of doing or the world of action or whatever. This physical world, but more than this physical world, it is this physical world plus uh, some of its spiritual components, which is in the Olam Asiyah. Higher than that is something called the Olam Yitzira, the world of formation. Higher than that is the Olam Habriya, the world of creation. Higher than that is the Olam Atsilus, the world now of closeness, to God, if you will. And finally, the highest world, which is called Adam Kadmon, primal man. Again, the word Adam. That's a world. Remember that the Adam embodies the world, not literally, all right? We're not talking about real noses here, although, well, other discussion. Uh, <laughs> uh, Folks, I greatly apologize, but we're going to have to stop there with the meaning of life as we've simply run out of time. However, we will be back next week so that Dr. Goldfinger can continue this teaching on the meaning of life. So until next week, please remember that we are not human beings having an occasional spiritual experience. We are, in fact, spiritual beings having a human experience. See you next week, folks.
Every Tuesday on Israel National Radio, the Temple Institute's Temple Talk with Yitzchak Ruvain and Rabbi Chaim Richman. It's about Jews. It's about Parshat HaShavua. It's about non-Jews. It's about the world. It's about our relationship to the Divine Presence. It's about the Holy Temple. It's about the rectification of all humanity. 3 p.m. Israel time. 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Temple time. Talk. It's everything you need to know about the Holy Temple and the Temple Mount. Every Tuesday on Israel National Radio. If you love Israel and you're coming to the Holy Land, you need Israel's best tour guide. See Israel like you've never seen it before. Mayor Eisenman will take you around the country for an educational and fun experience. Each tourist gets a personally designed tour. The land of the Bible, the land of the Tanakh, comes alive in the hands of an energetic and experienced tour guide. Visit IsraelByMayor.com. That's IsraelByMayor, M-E-I-R, or email him directly at IsraelByMayor at gmail.com.